This time of year, our skin gets so dry, especially for those of us who live in cold climates. So I couldn't live without One Earth Body Care. Their Skin Fix, which is great for your entire body. It's a thick, wonderful salve. You can rub it in your hands to soften it, and it makes your skin amazing. There's a day and night facial oil, which I use every day and night, and it really, really has helped my skin. There's a sleep balm that is also a salve consistency that has lavender and other things to help you relax. Of course, my all-time favorite is their natural deodorant because I am no longer smelly. If you've got a baby, they've got a baby butt saver. The other thing that has completely transformed my hair is their shampoo and conditioner bars. They've got Skin Fix for Pets, which has helped my glue stop eating his paws all the time or nibbling on them. And of course, they also have a pet shampoo bar. Please check them out at OneEarthBodyCare.com. I'm super excited today because we're going to be talking about issues that I love to talk about, sexual health, women's arousal, the importance of using a lubricant, women's pelvic health, urinary health, and also five reasons why exercise is great for your sexual health. So we're covering a lot today with the fantastic Dr. Karen Eilber. Dr. Karen Eilber is a board-certified urologist with subspecialty board certification in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery and has over 20 years of experience taking care of women's most intimate needs. She is an associate professor of urology and obstetrics and gynecology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and is the associate program director for the Cedars-Sinai Urology Residency Training Program. Prior to joining Cedars-Sinai, Dr. Eilber served at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center's urology department, where she gained extensive experience in pelvic reconstruction following cancer treatment. Dr. Elber's research focus has been in the field of urogynecology, and she has published multiple peer-reviewed manuscripts and book chapters. In addition to being a member and past president of the Los Angeles Urologic Society, Dr. Eilber is a member of the American Urological Association, the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction, the American Urogynecological Society, and the Society of Women in Urology. She is also a founding medical partner of Dr. Pedia. Now, Dr. Eilber has also created with her partner a fantastic lubricant, actually a couple of different lubricants, which we're going to talk about. And I am just thrilled to have her on the program. So great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, when did you first get interested in being a board-certified urologist? Well, everybody has to decide what they want to do when they're actually a medical student. But to be honest with you, I probably wanted to do everything but be a doctor because that's what my parents wanted me to do. <laughs> but it, when I was an undergrad, quickly realized I didn't really like anything else except for like science type of stuff. And, you know, just you start kind of going down. And quite honestly, my parents kind of bribed me a little bit. They said, if you try pre-med, you know, we'll buy you a car. And I mean, we were all like 17, right? Oh, yeah. Bring <laughs> it on. Okay. But if I don't actually get into medical school, can I keep the car? <laughs> <laughs> so then when I was in medical school and you do all of your different rotations, you know, so that you get exposed to all the different specialties, I really liked uh, gynecology. Um, I'm really super type A and not really very flexible with my schedule. So the whole OB thing was a little tough for me to swallow. So when I discovered there was actually a specialty of female urology and female pelvic health that does very, you know, similar things to gynecology, that's how I decided to do that. 
I've heard of something called urethral syndrome. Once in a while, I feel like in my urethra, it's just like this scratchy feeling. But, you know, urethral syndrome, I'm sure, you know, you're someone who does all your research. That's kind of like a, I don't want to say nonsensical, but yeah, catch all. Like, oh, okay. I mean, in general, you say urethral syndrome when we don't know what's going on. But honestly, you know, not not diagnosing you, but you might just be getting like little subclinical urinary tract infections. So not enough to actually show up on a test and it goes away by itself. I mean, the other thing and, you know, getting personal on your own show, Sure, this also could be a little bit hormonal. Right. Yeah. And so it's the genitourinary tract. And so there are estrogen receptors in the urethra and the bladder. So that's why it's very common that as women get perimenopause and menopause, they start having more urinary symptoms. But those hormonal changes also make us more prone to infection. So you could be having oh, little subclinical, you know, infections that clear on their own. And that's why you're like, oh, it's weird. I'm I feel irritated and I have to go to the bathroom more often. Then it goes away by itself. It goes away, but yeah. Yeah. So it could be could be little low-grade infections, could be hormonal. I think it's hormonal too. I mean, I had a full hysterectomy at 48 uh, because I had fibroids the size of cantaloupes pressing on my bladder. And my mother died of ovarian cancer at 57. So I'm in my 50s now. So I'm like, you know, and I've already had my child. And I was like, just take it all out. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I do take, I do take hormones in all transparency but I, you know, and I feel like I'm on a good dose, but we'll have to chat at some point because <laughs> I'm curious if, you know, maybe I should be using an estrogen cream or something, right? Like that could be helpful. There are many women who, even if you take systemic hormone replacement, doesn't always concentrate where you need it to. So there are plenty of women who do both systemic and vaginal estrogens. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of, there's a Mona Lisa laser therapy specifically yeah. for, yeah, that'll act. I mean, I was a little skeptical when it came out, but we do it in our office a lot. And so if you don't want to deal with the mess down there, the laser is also a good option. Oh. Tell us more about that. So the Mona Lisa laser therapy, and I'm not, I have no financial interest whatsoever. The, it is a CO2 fractionated laser. So I don't know if you recognize like the trademark fraxel for your face, like to resurface the skin. So it's the same concept. So the lining of the vagina is an epithelium, which is just a certain type of cell, just like the lining on our face. So the reason why you have laser treatments is you intentionally cause microscopic damage. And so the body's reaction is you make new cells. So that's why whether it's your face or your vagina, you get a whole new cell layer so the problem with, again, perimenopause and menopause is when there is lack of estrogen, we lose the elasticity and we also lose the thickness of the skin of the vagina. And so that's why it becomes less elastic. You don't lubricate as well. Sex becomes more painful. So you can use vaginal estrogen, which even women who have a history of breast cancer can use certain vaginal estrogens. But some people also kind of get sick of putting stuff in the vagina all the time. So right. <laughs> <laughs> that's why the laser is a good alternative. Um, in general, it's not covered by insurance. It's not terribly expensive. And for some people, the insurance coverage for the estrogens, it becomes a wash actually, because you typically get a treatment just once a year, but it's, it's an alternative. And that's the, that's the concept is it makes your vagina grow a thicker layer so that it functions better. Oh, that's interesting. Now, does that have any effect on the urethra or not so much? You know, the urethra wasn't specifically studied for that, um, but theoretically it should help probably not as much as actually vaginal estrogen. Okay. Well, I want to talk about your incredible lube. I am the biggest lube fanatic and I feel like there's kind of a stigma on that too. Like, well, what if I'm with my partner and I use the lube and they're thinking they're not turning me on enough yes. or this and that? 
right? But it, yes. it, you can be super turned on, but still need more help, especially for women. And, and I have a large part of this audience, women 40 and over. So yes. your lube, I did the CBD and CBG. How do you say this? Wheel de more oil of Ooh. love. <laughs> oh my, number one, I felt so fancy. It is a beautiful <laughs> hey, container. Hey, listen, if your vagina can't feel fancy, what can? <laughs> right? I was like, oh my God, this is so fancy. So we're, you know, I'm spraying it in my hands and my husband and I were like, holy crap, this is the best lube ever. Oh, I'm so, so glad. So tell us a little bit about what I had just mentioned, the stigma, why it's great to use lube, and then give us like some info on yours and how you came up with it and all that good stuff. Oh, so much info. So um, to begin with, actually, I'm going to start with what you start out with, with that many women do feel bad using lube because their partner thinks that they're not turned on. And what people don't realize is your libido does not equate arousal. So getting turned on does not mean that your body is going to respond the way that you do. And so in fact, on our website, we kind of have this area for men that says, you know, just because she's dry doesn't mean you're not turning her on. And so there is a stigma for that. So part of it is not just educating women, but also educating their partners, whether it's, you know, same sex, heterosexual, whatever couple that just because your partner isn't responding doesn't mean they're not turned on. They physically just might not be able to, right? Just like a man may have erectile dysfunction doesn't mean he doesn't want to have sex. He just can't get it up. So the same for women, if we don't have the right hormonal balance or sometimes even things like taking, I've had patients who take a lot of antihistamines that dries everything out. And that's why they couldn't lubricate. So, you know, we have this, it's so interesting to me that because I think this taboo that comes around this area, we don't use our common sense to apply what happens to the rest of our body to that area, right? So like if you don't have sex for five years, why do you think it's going to feel good when you finally do? Because if you didn't go to yoga class for five years, why do you think it's going to feel good when you go? But yet we have this idea that whenever we decide to use it, it's going to work. And that's unfortunately not how it works. So that's one thing. And then as far as the, how I got into this, so literally after being in practice for probably 10 years, one of the most common thing I would hear, and because I do a lot of pelvic surgery, we always, of course, have to ask about a woman's sexual function. And I just kept hearing over and over again, well, I'd like to be sexually active, but it's so painful because I'm dry. What's a good lube? You know, and you kind of mentioned what was available at the time. And then they'd come back and I'd say, well, how, you know, did you resume sexual activity? No, because I felt worse after using the lube. So you look at the ingredients and there are a lot of chemicals that we exclude from even our beauty products these days. And this is stuff that we're actually putting, you know, in the vagina. So my co-founder who, um, who was already in the beauty industry, I said, hey, what would it take for me? to, you know, make a lube. Cause I had no idea like how to do any of this stuff. This is not my world. So we started down that path and then realized that lubricants are actually considered a medical device. And so you're supposed to have FDA clearance. There really isn't an enforcement about it. So you don't have to do it. But if I was going to put my name as a doctor on there, I figured let's do that. And it takes a long time, obviously to get FDA clearance. So that was our water-based lube. And unfortunately, in the middle of this, my co-founder's sister got sick and she actually had metastatic brain cancer. Oh my God. And so she sorry. was in so much pain. And one of the nurses, and this is, you know, about five years ago, one of the nurses told my co-founder, hey, maybe you should get your sister some CBD. And this was when it wasn't mainstream yet, right? And so yeah. my co-founder actually still had to get like permission and all that kind of stuff. So she gave her sister the CBD and her sister started crying. It was the first time she was out of pain. 
So my co-founder says, hey, if we're making a product that's supposed to help with pain, why don't we make one with CBD? And I'm like, whoa, like they're going to get hot, you know, because back then we didn't know. And I'm like a doctor, right? So like, I'm like, I can't give people drugs in their vagina. (laughs) So started doing a little more research. You find out that CBD really is an amazing compound and it's got like anti-inflammatory helps with pain. Anyway, so that's how we had this CBD product. And of course, the FDA does not recognize CBD products. That's why that one is not FDA cleared. It's just not, it's just not a possibility. So that's how we ended up with our loops. And I mean, it really started out as a need and it's still a need, of course, but also realized that who wants to carry on a lube that looks like a tube of toothpaste? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. I mean, if you want to feel sexy, you have like, you don't put on your old grandma underwear and a t-shirt to feel sexy. You put on sexy lingerie. So if you're going to pull out your lube, you might as well pull out a sexy looking lube. Do you find a difference between the water-based and the oil-based? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, water and oil obviously have totally different texture. They last, you know, a different amount of time. But if you're really using condoms and you're using a lot of toys, you're probably better off using water-based. And also some people just don't like oil. So the the water-based is also probably... Um, not only good for people who have condoms, but people who have our super sensitive skin, because even like CBD, although it's like anti-inflammatory, you know, the, the water is just thinner. So it, they're just totally different. It's like some people like cream for their skin. Some people just like, you know, a thin lotion. So they're, they're very different. The main thing is if, again, if you're using condoms, you really need to use the water-based one Definitely. and the CBD one. Um, I don't know if you realized you can actually spray it in your mouth and you can get the benefits of CBD. So it's because they're all natural um, ingredients. How can I say? If they're good enough for your vagina, they're good enough for oral consumption. <laughs> oh, see, now that is nice. Now, speaking of that, that's why I'm curious about the water base because it's a salt and sea salt and caramel. It's a very, very light taste. So it was funny when we decided... We were going to do like just a, you know, no flavor at all. And it is food grade flavor. So it's not fragrance, Um, but it was just so kind of boring. And then at the time we literally were like trying to look up and asking people like, what's the most popular flavor? And at that time was sea salt and caramel. Um, But it's, it's, you know, how can I put this in a politically correct way? Nobody really smells and tastes good down there. So it just kind of helps with that. I mean, I don't care. I don't care what you say. I mean, it's like people don't, again, don't think about like our mouth, right? It's full of bacteria. Normally you have to brush your teeth. You use mouthwash for a reason. Our vagina is full of bacteria. It's always going to have a certain odor and taste. And we don't really have the equivalent of a toothbrush, nor should you do that for your vagina. (laughs) Good. Now that's an interesting point because I've always heard that self your vagina self's clean and you don't need to use douches. It is. It, I mean, for if you are, again, relatively hormonally balanced normally, I mean, obviously, if you're postmenopausal and you're not taking hormones, sometimes there is an imbalance for sure. But you know, there's a reason why the vagina makes a discharge. It is kind of cleaning, shedding that, you know, cell air all the time. So when you douche, unfortunately, you also take away the good bacteria and the good bacteria really help to keep the bad bacteria in check. Okay. Well, let's talk about the importance of Kegel exercises. My mother, so funny. I don't know, you know, if there's, I, I've seen there's like different ways now, but my mother started teaching me about Kegels. I think I was 12. She's like, here's that. I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, even when I was in college, she's like, are you doing your Kegels? And of course I never was. I was in college. 
but now I try to do them. And uh, I would love for you to talk about that. Is that still super important? So Kegel exercises definitely have an important place, but what I do want to reinforce is they don't solve everything. I mean, we've been telling women this myth forever. Oh, just do your Kegel exercises. It's like my kid can't get in college. Oh, just do your Kegel exercises, right? (laughs) So Kegel exercises, keep in mind, you can strengthen muscles. You cannot strengthen ligaments and tendons. So when a woman has a vaginal delivery, there is always stretching and tearing, not just of the muscles, but of the tendons, which is why when a woman's bladder is falling out and quite a bit, you can kegel all you want to, but you cannot shorten the ligaments. So I always give my patients the analogy, if you tear your ACL in your knee, you can do all the physical therapy in the world but you actually have to have an ACL repair because you have to repair that ligament, which is why Kegels for milder prolapse or when your organs are falling for sure can make you feel better um, because it strengthens muscles. But you know, if a woman really has severe prolapse, she can Kegel all she wants to, but it's not going to reverse it or make her feel feel better. And also for like milder incontinence, like if you're losing a little bit of urine here and there, coughing and sneezing, you could, your Kegels might help, but again, it's the same concept you stretched or torn the support around the urethra. So that's why I see a lot of women who feel really bad. Oh, I didn't do enough kegels or I didn't do them right. Now you probably were. It's just, it doesn't solve everything. Right. No, that's good to know. And I, I should probably give some context about why my mother was so obsessed. She, after I was born, she had a prolapsed uterus. Sorry, mom. And she had to, you know, it was a, she ended up having a hysterectomy. And, but I think that's why she thought, well, if I could prevent it. I mean, is there a preventative at all using doing kegels when you're young? I mean, theoretically, if you do your kegels at, right, if anytime you're in better shape before you have an injury, you're going to be better off, but that doesn't guarantee it. I mean, if you're, again, back to the control freak me, I had all of the C-sections. Yeah, I had C-section too. So yeah, if if you have a totally elective C-section, your chance of getting prolapse and all the anti-C-section people are probably going to like hate me for saying this, your chance of prolapse is, you know, essentially zero. And I'm not saying every woman should have it because lots of women, you know, they want to have that experience of delivering vaginally. But what I don't like is we don't really tell women what to expect. So again, I see a lot of women who, you know, are so upset because no one's talking about, oh, well, gee, you had the baby. Now you piss yourself and your uterus is falling out. And they think they're the only one because nobody's talking about it. And so that's why I just, it's interesting. We actually did a study of women who were in their first pregnancy and were like, what's your birth plan? And of course, everyone wanted to have their, you know, vaginal delivery in their bathtub, whatever it was, right? right? And then we said, well, here are the risks of vaginal delivery. Here's the risks of, you know, elective C-section. And very few women changed their birth plan, but universally, at least they said, I know what to expect afterwards. And this is another, like, whatever goal of mine is to inform women like what to expect like what is normal like we have we have some health class in like middle school maybe right and that depends on what school you're at they even let you talk about sex or not and then there's nothing so you're kind of on your own with what's normal during my pregnancy what's normal right after what can I expect to recover from and when I don't recover after what time period should I think about getting this fixed because it's not going to get better the longer the time goes on yeah, it, it's funny you say that because I actually had, re- I was really nervous about vaginal birth because my whole life I've always had to pee a lot. No pain, no, but just, it's just one of those things. I mean, my dad would joke, like, we don't go on car trips because we'd have to stop 10 times in an hour. Like, I don't know what that, anyway, apparently I have a tiny bladder, but so I was really nervous. And then I read this article, which basically talked about all the things that could happen and go wrong. And I, I went to my doctor and I said, I don't want to give birth badly. I want a C-section. They're like, well, we don't do that in this practice. 
And I said, well, what if I get you? I had gone through some testing. This is, I lived in California and then I moved to the East Coast. So I, I said, can I get, I'll get the testing for my urologist and they'll show that, no, I don't have you know, major issues, but I do have the frequency and just whatever. Here's what's going on with my bladder. Cause I had the, um, what's it called? They put the thing in it and they look inside and they. Mystoscopy. Yes. And so when they got the information, they talked to my doctor, they're like, okay, for you, we'll do it. It's hard because, you know, I'm balancing this natural world and the importance of the baby getting your good stuff through the, you know, vaginal canal and they're and strengthening their microbiome. But guess what? I've nursed my daughter since she was three. Now I'm not saying everyone has to do that. Right. But I'm just saying that if you do feel torn about getting a C-section, then think about, you know, making sure to nurse. No, it's for sure. I was going to say, it's not the vaginal delivery. It's actually, and the most important part of your nursing is probably the first three or four weeks when they're getting, babies have really no immunity. And you're, when you start nursing, your colostrum are the first kind of, when you, that's really what has most of the important nutrients and antibodies and everything for the baby. So, I mean, that's why women also shouldn't feel bad. Like if you can only nurse for a month, so be it. I mean, do what you can do. Like we, we just, women are just made to feel guilty about so many things, you know? And like, I got mastitis with my first son and like after three weeks, and I'm just like, First of all, like I call my OB, they're like, oh, you can just keep nursing. I'm like, that just seems really weird to keep nursing my child when I have an active infection. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, I mean, apparently that's like normal, but like, I'm like, this, that just seems weird to me. And plus the fact that like my boob hurts so bad, like the baby cries and like, I'm crying. I'm like, I'm done. I'm like, he can go to formula and he was totally fine. But yeah, it's not the, it's not the vaginal delivery that really does anything. And they, they say, oh, the baby comes to the vaginal canal and it squeezes the fluid out of their lungs. Give me a break. If the baby got squeezed hard enough to get the fluid out of their lungs, they'd be dead. It's really <laughs> like you going into labor right. and all those last minute steroids that get released and everything. So it's it's interesting. That's why when you have an elective C-section, they don't really want you to have your C-section, I think, before 37 weeks because you want to be full, full term. I actually went a little bit early with all my kids, but I think because I was in labor, that's all that last minute stuff because knock on wood, all my kids were like totally fine. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I was actually in labor uh, when they were preparing me for the C-section yeah, and it was horrible. I was in so much pain and the woman yeah, like, hurts. trying to shave me and she's like, stay still. And I'm like, lady, I'm doing my best. Come on. <laughs> well, talk to us a little bit about what types of pelvic surgery you do. Is it mostly like prolapse kind of situations? A lot of prolapse, a lot of incontinence. Um, you know, some women just want to be like cosmetically tightened. They want to have their labia fixed. Not, not a lot of that. Um, I mean, I still do some genealogy, kidney stones, different things, but really when it comes to pelvic surgery, I mean, the great majority is incontinence prolapse because a lot of other conditions are not treated surgically. Now talk to us about the incontinence, like how prolapse do you have to be to actually, you know, need a surgery or are there other things they can do? So one kind of common misconception is it's the prolapse that causes incontinence and vice versa. But in fact, you can have incontinence and no prolapse because it's actually support of the urethra. And the more prolapsed you are, it becomes actually more difficult to urinate. And so many women will say, oh, I used to leak urine, but since my bulge in my vagina showed up, I don't leak. So, you know, no, it is, there are very few women who medically have to have any of these things fixed. So like, if a woman has such severe prolapse that she can't empty her bladder and the urine's back up into her kidneys, 
then that's the case. But honestly, in my 20 years of practice, that's happened less than a handful of times. You know, most of the time it just becomes bothersome because, you know, people don't like feeling a bulge in their vagina. It makes you feel a little less sexy. It makes you, you know, really fear having intercourse because you think that you're going to hurt yourself or your partner is going to know. So it's really a quality of life surgery. So although it is considered elective, meaning you don't have to do it, it is medically necessary. So it, it is covered by insurance. I think it's also... You know, it's, it's a difficult choice for women because you don't want to willy-nilly have surgery, right? But it's bothering you. And so if you have half a brain, of course, you're going to weigh your risks and benefits, you know? So that's why most women will put up with their prolapse or incontinence for many years before they have it taken care of. Now, I read that it's not normal to leak a little urine when you laugh or cough or, you know, like I'll jump on our trampoline that that's a problem because I'm, and I've also read, oh no, if you've had a baby, that's totally normal. So which is right? Well, it's never normal to accidentally lose, right? Any fluids from your body. Um, but it's, but, but it's, but it's extremely common. Okay. Right. So that's the difference. I mean, we're not, I mean, very few people are ever going to be like the way they were when they were 18 again. Right. I mean, it's like, is it normal to have weaker muscles as you age? Yes, you know, and it's also very common, but um, the two reasons why women will lose urine when they're jumping on the trampoline. One is if you have vaginal delivery and you actually lose the support, but also for some women who've never had babies can still get this because they actually just get weakness of their muscles. And so especially the women who have not had babies, they're the ones who the Kegel exercises can help because it's not their ligaments that have been stretched and torn. It's an actual weakness of the muscle. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I had a C-section, so maybe my muscles are just, and it's not a lot. It's like a drop, but. So your mom was right. <laughs> See? Back to you, mom. Oh, she'd be Sorry, so happy. mom. <laughs> yeah. She also packed me with like so many bottles of calcium. I took none. It's like, what the hell was wrong? You know, I'm 18. I'm fine. I'm invincible. But my mom's like, do your giggles, take your calcium. No one, no one wants to listen to their mom. And then you're like, oh, darn it. She was right. She was, <laughs> she was so right. Talk to us about Valentine's Day. I love on your site, you had you have go ahead, make my Valentine's Day. Uh, what's going on? What do you have? What can we get? We have, so the other thing we have that's really great are their CBD basalts, Ooh. which feels so good. They smell amazing, by the way. Thank you for including that sample. Oh, oh my God. And they're so pretty. It's in a little glass bottle. I just put it up on the shelf because I have like the most horrible, smallest bathtub. So I'm going to have to find someone with a big bathtub and <laughs> take a nice bath someday. <laughs> Someone comes take home. It when you travel. Yes. But the great thing is the so the lubes, I don't know if you realize the lubes and the basalt jar, they all have refills available. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we're also trying to be sustainable. So that's why like if you go back to purchase, you can actually just buy the, the refill of either. But for Valentine's Day, we do have sets um that are, you know, obviously at a discounted price. And I think it's also probably great for like, you know, partners to get because these are things where like you always want them, but it's always good for like your partner or somebody to get yeah, a for a gift. <laughs> exactly. Have you thought about uh, going into business with like a lingerie company as well? Because I could see some really yes. wonderful. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, I think though that probably the next step really would be, you know, trying to kind of find the ultimate vibrator that kind of goes along, you know, with our stuff. So we so we do have, we are co-promoting right now um, with V for Vibes. They've got a gorgeous uh, necklace vibrator that we're offering during Valentine's Day, but you know, it'd be nice to have one that kind of goes along with our whole kind of theme. And it'll also be interesting in the study that we're doing to see, like, is there a certain amount of time to that's prescribed that's better for people or does external like vibration, 
is it good just for health maintenance? And maybe you just use an internal vibrator when, you know, you just want to pleasure yourself or is it the same, whether it's internal or external? Yeah. You know, one, one thing that I'm worried about is I think I've used my external so often (laughs) for so many years. Can it make it harder for you to have an orgasm either with your hand or your partner, because you're used to that intense pulsing or is that a myth? You know, I don't know that anyone knows the scientific answer to that because no one has actually studied that. But, you know, there there are many myths. It's like, oh, well, you know, don't shave because your hair will grow back thicker. It's actually not true. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> you know, so my guess is no. But I think that if people have different partners a lot, right, because it does take a certain amount of time to get comfortable with your partner. And so if you're so used to your vibrator and maybe your partner doesn't know what you want, it's not that you can't do it. It's just a, fami- a familiarity thing. Right. And I think also maybe sometimes you can relax more by yourself. Of course. there. I mean, there are, there are, I have lots of male patients who have no problems getting erections when they're masturbating and yet with their partner, they can't. Oh, wow. Right. And there are also lots of women who, yeah, they're fine when they're masturbating, but if they're with a partner, they can't. I mean, you have to be relaxed in order for everything. I mean, it sounds so stupid because you always say, oh, honey, just relax. But there is a component that if you're not, it's just like anxiety and stress isn't good for your overall health. Anxiety and stress isn't good to bring to the bedroom. Yeah, that's true. Now, and just going back to incontinence for a moment, if you're like me and you're, you know, you have to literally be jumping up and down for any pee, I don't think I need to rush to the doctor, but you're talking about like, what type of incontinence are you talking about when you're like, okay, some surgery needs to be done? So overactive bladder, like frequency, urgency, leakage with overwhelming urge, that is typically not treated with surgery. That's usually treated like strengthening your pelvic floor. There's overactive bladder medications. Botox can be injected into the bladder. So that's typically not surgery. The leakage, though, that is with coughing, sneezing, exercising, that is usually an anatomic issue. But depending on the severity, so, you know, working in Beverly Hills, my analogy is, There is surgery that's like a facelift that's actual surgery. There are fillers for the urethra that can actually be done. So if you have milder incontinence, you can actually do what's called a bulking agent. And often many, many urologists or urogynecologists actually will do that in the office. Or if you really don't want to do it in the office, you can do it like with some twilight anesthetic. Oh my, okay. Will that help with like that itchiness you get or the irritation from maybe whether it's lack of hormones? no. No, because if that's like a hormone infection, I mean, this this will just treat only. Having said that, when you have mild stress incontinence, right, because your urethra isn't totally closed, that puts you a little bit risk for infection. So it may indirectly help that, but no one's ever going to tell you, yes, if you have your bulking agent, it's going to get rid of that feeling. That is so interesting. I'd heard about the Botox, but I hadn't heard about the filler. That's amazing. Yeah, I can't imagine doing that not being under some kind of twilight sedation. I mean, when I do it in the office, we usually give women a nice little, you know, they take a little Valium and oh, then a pain nice. in addition, you know, and they have somebody, they either Uber, you know, they have somebody drive them to the office, but yeah, you don't want to do it like straight up awake and, <laughs> and nothing. <laughs> That's just kind of mean. <laughs> Dr. Albert, I am so enjoying this conversation and I'm super excited to jump into the five ways to improve your sexual health with exercise. And the first one is confidence. Well, you know, everybody feels better about themselves when they feel like they look better. And I also think that when you, you know, you exercise and, you know, I run a lot and I do believe in that runner's high and almost becomes like your addiction, like you can't give it up. And 
I think that when you feel in control of your body, which you often do, whether you're running, doing yoga, different things, you just have more confidence. And I think confidence is whether you're looking for a new job, in a relationship, feeling sexy, I think it's very important. Yeah, I think so too. And I also feel like, and, and people who listen to the show know, I'm really big into the organization Health at Every Size, which is basically like, just move your body. Yeah. Just do what makes you feel good. Stop focusing on the scale so much. One of my... um prior yoga teachers. That was one of my favorite sayings she would say is just keep moving. doesn't matter what you're doing. Just keep moving. And it is one of those things. It's like, I think that when you feel it's the hardest to actually go work out, that's when you should go do it. Right. Cause like, you're yeah, never exactly. sorry you exercise, but you are sorry that you didn't later. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Uh, the second thing is endurance. Well, I think it's no secret. I mean, if you're really, if you have no cardio, you know, <laughs> endurance, it's going to be a little hard to do anything else that gets your, your heart pumping and your uh, lungs breathing a little harder. So I like to put my headphones on when I'm running because there's something mental about like when you hear yourself like breathing really hard, you're like, ooh, I'm not so in shape. <laughs> <laughs> so I think when you have a little better endurance, you're not like huffing and puffing like in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, you know, and also it's just the natural arousal that when you, you know, start getting sexually aroused, already you're going to have a little heavier breathing. So if you're out of shape, it probably sounds really bad. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Oh my gosh. I've never thought about that. That is hysterical. All right. Number three, and this is super important for your sexual health, is circulation. We got to get that blood flow everywhere. We, I think we really underestimate, you know, what blood does. It brings all the nutrients, brings the oxygen. So one of the things that um, actually we're currently doing a study on is if the use of a vibrator on a regular basis can actually improve female sexual function and other pelvic functions. So for instance, when men have their prostate removed, typically for cancer, it is now very common to put them on something like Viagra or a similar medication immediately after surgery. And not that we think that they're going to be able to be sexually functioning, but it's to increase the blood flow because we know that helps with healing. So in fact, some men after like a year after prostate surgery would come back and say, you know, my penis is short. And you're like, sure it is. You just forgot. And actually someone cited and saw that because of the decreased blood flow, the tissue, because it's spongy in the penis, it actually shortened because it got scarred. So that's why now we call it penile rehabilitation. Well, we do major pelvic surgery on women all the time, take out their uterus and ovaries. Maybe they're not sexually active for a while. So we're trying to see that if a woman uses a vibrator on a regular basis, and it doesn't have to be to actual orgasm, but just to increase the blood flow to see if that helps. On the flip side, people who have small vessel disease, diabetes, hypertension, right? Erectile dysfunction we know is very common with that. And yet we don't really make the analogy for women and the same thing probably happens. Oh, yeah. Now, can that be an external vibrator or does it have to yeah. be internal? Well, to be to be D, but um, TBD, but in our study, we're doing external just because it's much easier, you know, and especially, you know, these are it's interesting, like women are interested in signing up for it, even if they don't use a vibrator normally. So I think it's a little less scary if you're not used to using one to just have one externally. But theoretically, it won't make a difference, but it's just easier for our study to do it externally. <laughs> Well, I sure love my neck massager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can always put that other places, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. I mean, 
I just think I'm very open and I think masturbation is so important and especially for women, you know, for the reasons that you're stating and also to, you know, figure out what you like and what you don't like and the pressure and be able to communicate with your partner. It's all so important. Just so much taboo. You know, if, if there's one thing, you know, that is a goal of mine, it should just normalize the conversation. I, I, you know, I mean, I take care of women and their intimate parts for a living. And even patients that have been seeing me for a while will often preface questions with, well, I want to ask, but I'm a little embarrassed. I'm like, listen, if you can't ask me, like, I don't know who you can. Why should we even have to preface anything that has to do with our sexuality with, I'm kind of embarrassed, you know, but the stigma, it's like mental health. We talk about sexual health, but yet we really don't look at it as a health issue. We look at it as taboo and, you know, kind of snickers in the background. It's really unfortunate. I mean, I used to be a sex educator. I have a master's in public health and I would go into the high schools and talk with the students. And then I would, you know, also talk with some adults. Sometimes they come into the clinic and different issues. And yeah, the shame around it, it's just too bad because it's a, it's a wonderful part of life and it's natural. Well, I think the shame is, some of it is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors. Religion is one. One of my girlfriends actually texted me the other day. She was supposed to give a lecture at a high school about sex ed, just like you were talking about. Um, but it's at a religious school. And so she was told she is not allowed to use the word clitoris, is not allowed to use the word vagina. I'm like, well, how are you going to talk about it? Those are the actual like scientific medical terms. And so when we can't even use those terms in an education class, the underlying message is it's shameful and you shouldn't even talk about it. Yeah. See, that's ridiculous. There was uh, this was, oh gosh, back in 2003, I was working as a teacher at a private high school, Catholic high school. I was filling in for someone on maternity leave and I, they, I liked the job. It was great. And, but I couldn't stay there because I couldn't talk about sex and and condoms like oh my god you can't bring up condoms i'm like you know what i like to talk about abstinence and and birth control like why we can't why can't we do both not to mention the funding that will go to programs that only are abstinence only which to me is ridiculous like let's just talk about the whole let's be let's be realistic they're all having sex (laughs) they are having sex yeah right and we can actually help them by telling them how to protect themselves against like unwanted pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections all right uh intensity talk to us about that Well, I think it goes back to also your cardiovascular health. So I think the more intense the exercise, and again, back to that, you know, in my study of one, my runner's high, (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like when you get your, there is something about endorphins and getting things running and getting your circulation going. I think the higher the intensity, you know, the more in tune you are with your body. I also think that, again, back to that control, the confidence I think that in order for anybody, and unfortunately, especially women, to truly enjoy themselves, you have to feel confident and let go of all of your, I mean, I hate to say it, but your insecurities and let your partner know because, you know, and I hate to be sexist, but it's a little easier for guys, you know, to climax in women because there are so many more factors that go into it. So I think that if you are, you know, feeling pretty healthy, you're feeling confident in yourself, I think you can enjoy yourself much more. You are so fun to talk to, and I have learned so much. Is there anything that you wanted to add today? And I'd love to have you back. I love having these candid conversations. I would love to come back. I love the fact that you are open, and not only are you open, but you're actually willing. You're like me. Maybe you're too open. Like you talk about your daughter, your mom, everything. I know. I'm always like, okay, don't tell my husband. Thankfully, like my husband and my sons don't do social media. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I... I think you're like me. We just want to get 
the word out, making conversations like this normal. And, you know, there's a fine line between being so by the book and so clinical that people don't feel comfortable asking questions. And then there's the entire other end of the spectrum, which there's nothing wrong with it, but like porn and stuff like that. But there's a lot of people who are not comfortable with that. So it's like, where's the middle of the road where people really just want some education in a casual setting where you feel comfortable asking questions that people really actually want to know the answer to and get a legitimate response. Yeah. You must be such a popular doctor. I mean, really. Oh, thanks. I do love what I do. I'm a, I'm a big um, women's advocate. I do think that we women are misrepresented um, in medicine all the time. I mean, I don't know if you followed any of that, like mesh dilemma and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, it's, it's so interesting. Like in urology, some of the devices that we use for men's health, like have really horrible potential complications, but because they can really help a lot of men, there's never been discussion to take them off the market. Yet things that are for women that have some potential complications, like, oh, take them all off the market. It's it's really quite interesting to be a urologist to see the discrepancies between men and women. Mm-hmm. So mesh is uh, it's polypropylene or like similar to plastic, if you will. It is an implant. It has been used for hernia repairs for decades. It's actually been used for incontinence to support the urethra for decades. So the concept is it acts as a scaffold that your own cells grow into. Okay. And so it's actually considered the worldwide gold standard for stress incontinence because the success rates are so high and the complications are so low. Well, because it was such a great material, then some device company said, well, let's start using it for vaginal prolapse repairs. And personally, I thought it was good, um, but I do a lot of these surgeries. Unfortunately, there was kind of this misconception that you don't necessarily need to know how to do the surgeries, just put the mesh in. Right. So that's like, like you don't go to a tax attorney for your divorce, right? You go to a divorce attorney. And yet lots of women, unfortunately, were going to people who weren't specialized in this. So of course, like mesh gets a bad rap, but it's like, if the mesh gets put in the wrong place, it didn't walk there by itself. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not the mesh, it's the person who... Right. So what's interesting is it had this whole thing with the FDA and mesh for vaginal prolapse surgery is actually taken off the market, but it's still available for incontinence because... It is the most widely studied implant in like women's pelvic health, I think, in history. But the problem is you hear the word mesh and most people don't know the whole story. Um, All you know is you see these ads on TV. Have you been injured by blah, blah, blah? You know, we'll get you millions. Um, So that's really kind of the issue with that. But again, we, you know, it's interesting because like for men, there is something called an artificial urinary sphincter that you implant in. Well, if you have a problem with that, I mean, sometimes it, will require removal of the whole device. It can put holes in the urethra, different things. And yet it's never been a conversation to take that off the market. And again, in, in the wrong hands, it can be a disaster, right? But it's, it is a good device. And even in the best hands, it can still be a disaster, unfortunately. But you know, you have to be able to offer this to people and it should be done by people who are experienced doing it. Well, it's interesting because I was speaking with a plastic surgeon recently And we were talking about breast lifts and they said that they use like, you can have this like mesh bra that will like hold up your breasts. And I was like, Hmm. that sounds like that a built-in bra. (laughs) 
I'm busty. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. But no, I, I don't want to do that. But but it was interesting. So when you said mesh, it made me think of that. That is kind of interesting. I, I have not heard of that. It's interesting. That would be great. At any rate, you're fabulous. Give us all oh, the ways we you. can find you and your amazing products. And I only rave about things I've tried. I'm very authentic. And let me tell you, your, your, your lube is fabulous. I'll, I'll try the water-based one too. Thanks so much. Oh yeah. And great. I'm happy to be on anytime. You, I mean, you can obviously tell I'll talk forever about anything. Oh, it's super fun. So which, should we go to, uh, could you spell it out for it's glis, How do you say it? Glis- Glissant. It actually is slippery in French. G-L-I-S-S-A-N-T. Ooh. I love that. So glissantlove.com. And they should definitely shop for Valentine's and beyond. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thanks, Lisa. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy. And Lisa? At Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.